Hey everybody, welcome back to the Bold Sidebar. This is your host, Jeff Horn, talking all things New Jersey Supreme Court. I'm recording on June 25, 2022. We are getting to the end of the court term. Hence, there are a flurry of activities. I gave you a couple of civil cases last time, and I've got four criminal cases. I have been harping on the shortfall on the bench. That is that uh, within a few days, we will have only four sworn justices out of seven. I will not belabor that point today. Hopefully, we will have some progress from Trenton soon. So let's talk about these four criminal cases, state v. cases. All of them have a common theme, although it's utterly irrelevant to how the court dropped the four opinions, but timing has been an essential piece of all four of these cases. So let's just jump in. State v. Derry, D-E-R-R-Y, two brothers, Michael, M-I-K-A-L, and Malik, M-A-L-I-K, are involved in drug dealing in Atlantic City. And they are under the watchful eye of the FBI. The FBI tracks their uh, movements, surveillance, wiretaps, text messages. As a result, they are charged with drug trafficking, a bunch of other offenses, and the discharge of a firearm. This discharge of a firearm resulted in the death of a rival drug dealer, Tyquin James, T.Y., as he's referred to at a couple of points in the opinion. So T.Y. is standing outside a business, and a man rides up on a bicycle with a hood on, shoots him three times, he dies. This case is about the dual sovereignty doctrine, where the federal government has had prosecution, and then the state has a prosecution arising out of the same conduct. So back to the federal. Federal charges come through. The defendants are found guilty of myriad charges. And in the sentencing phase, the federal district court judge enhances the defendant's penalties as a result of the death of T.Y. He was not, the the brothers were not charged with murder or a murder equivalent under federal law, but the fact that the weapon discharge resulted in the death of T.Y. was part of the enhancement and they get a life sentence. It's important to note that during the federal proceedings, both brothers testified that they had performed the murder of T.Y. Michael stated he did it and that Malik had nothing to do with it. However, in text messages, Michael had indicated that Malik was the murderer. Specifically, Leek had splashed T.Y. Which brings us to Special Agent Cop of the FBI, who testified in the state trial as a lay witness. The trial court found that the detective's testimony was lay testimony as opposed to expert. And this is a fine point of the case that the New Jersey Supreme Court, uh, following the appellate divisions, finding that the testimony was actually expert testimony, was based upon his training, knowledge, and experience. He was familiar with the slang. He had compared the party's voices 
Again, he listened to 7,000 phone calls, read numerous text messages, watched surveillance, and that his knowledge of the slang was outside the ken of the average juror. So even though the defense had demanded that cop be treated as an expert, the trial court treated cop as a lay witness. This turned out to be harmless error in as much as the defendant's own admissions harmed their case, their voices, the fact that a gun, the gun used to kill T.Y. was found in Michael's apartment, and the fact that there were other expert witnesses who tied the conduct with the crime. So that's that piece of the case. There's another piece of the case that deals with a statute, rather procedural statute, in connection with dual sovereignty, NJSA 2C colon 1-3F. So, and I should, I should say, in the state court matter uh, addressed by the New Jersey Supreme Court, this is on a motion to dismiss the defense looking to dismiss the charges against the two brothers inasmuch as they had already been prosecuted by the federal government and suffered an enhanced sentence due to the death of T.Y. So I mentioned timing. Here's the timing. Federal charges, federal trial, conviction. After the conviction, the state indicted the defendants, but the indictment came down prior to the sentencing of the defendants. So the state did not have the information regarding the sentence did not have the enhancement of the sentence that had not been handed down by the federal court at that point. So there's a lot of wrangling in this case about this particular statute, including for those that remember Bill Clinton saying to, I think it was uh, NPR or PBS, I think it might have been Jim Lair, the more I think about it on PBS saying, uh, it, def- it depends on what the definition of is, is. Well, the statute says that the state court powers arise when a defendant is being prosecuted in another jurisdiction for the same conduct. That's the language of the statute that created some of the controversy in the case. The state took the position that the federal prosecution was done and hence the statute did not apply because the defendants were, or the defendant is not being prosecuted at the moment. Justice uh, Solomon, writing the unanimous opinion, Justice Pierre-Louis did not participate, found that that was illogical. In other words, how would a state court judge dismiss a case that might be pending in a concurrent jurisdiction without knowing the result? Would would a court dismiss a case with prejudice just because there might be a proceeding arising out of the same conduct in another jurisdiction? It makes no sense. made no sense to Justice Solomon. And the state's argument failed in connection with the Bill Clinton, depending upon what the definition of is is. The other piece of the statute relevant to the state interest is whether the prosecution in the other jurisdiction would serve the interest of New Jersey. Here, the state's interest in pursuing the defendants for the most heinous and vile crime under our law, murder, was not served by the federal prosecution, as found by the New Jersey Supreme Court, Justice Solomon. 
finding that the federal proceeding did not culminate in a jury finding the defendants murdered James, also known as T.Y. here. So in a nutshell, under the 2C colon 1-3F, the definition of is includes was as well. Let's move on to a pretty heinous, another heinous murder. In this case, what I flippantly refer to in my matrimonial practice as a Smith & Wesson divorce, but no laughing matter here. This is State v. Rivas, R-I-V-A-S. The constitutional issue is the invocation of the right to counsel. I'll get to that. Rivas and his wife have a young child. You can infer from the opinion that Rivas is jealous, thinking that she might be stepping out on him. And Rivas reports his wife missing after a day or so. He spends the next couple of days trying to help the police in their investigation regarding the missing wife until surveillance footage is obtained by the police showing Rivas driving around in Elizabeth in the middle of the night. He claims that he was driving around uh, looking for his wife who was having a liaison with another man. He had left his two-year-old baby alone for an hour or two on this surveillance mission. He was arrested for child endangerment and related charges. Later, he changes his story to reflect that he was abducted with his wife. The wife was murdered and he was warned. He was you know, taped and beaten and this and that. And he was warned that his days were numbered, but he was cut loose. While he was incarcerated, he attempted suicide by smashing his scrotum. This resulted in hospitalization. And while in the hospital, the police spoke to him on a couple of occasions, including one very long six-hour session. Of course, medical people were coming in and out. Doctors were coming in and out. Uh, and it got to the point where the detectives were answering the doctor's questions on behalf of Rivas when docs were asking what had happened to the defendant. He was in the hospital with guards outside the hospital room. And as I say, for hours, six hours, detectives in the hospital room. It is clear that the defendant invoked his right to counsel, saying, ah, I should get a lawyer. Can you recommend a lawyer? How much does a lawyer cost? The detectives gave some responses. You'd be qualifying for the public defender. He said that wouldn't work for him. That's not going to help him. But notwithstanding the eventually clear enough invocation of the right to counsel, the interrogation continued, resulting in a confession of the grotesque murder where he bangs his wife over the head with a meat tenderizer and then applies duct tape over her mouth and nose takes the body in a suitcase and dumps the body in a house in Chatham. The case goes to a jury. He's not convicted of murder, but he is convicted of manslaughter. On appeal, the issues are related to his interrogations. I should say, after the six-hour interrogation day in the hospital, he told the detectives he needs to speak to them again tomorrow. He made reference, makes reference to his cell phone, his child, and the funeral arrangements for the wife. So 
The next day, he goes right from the hospital to the Union County Prosecutor's Office in his hospital gown, and he's Mirandized, very clearly Mirandized. He recites the warnings on on a videotape. I should say, in the hospital, it was audiotaped by one of the detectives that was performing the interrogation of him. This is a, a new day, a new interrogation, and again, he spills the beans, confesses clearly to killing his wife. The legal question is whether there was a reinitiation of communication between the defendant and the police after his clearly illegal interrogation on the prior day when he was in the hospital with the detective for six hours and had invoked his right to counsel uh, with sufficient clarity on more than one occasion. So the next day's interrogation, although, again, he's clearly Mirandized, he seems to be acting voluntarily, the court made very clear that once the invocation of counsel is made under the Edwards v. Arizona standard, the interrogation must stop. Here, the interrogation never stopped, went on for hours. Next day, while he's still under guard of police, he's taken to the prosecutor's office. So he was never sort of released and came back. There was no attenuation. The attenuation analysis is inapplicable here. This is Justice Albin's opinion. It's a unanimous opinion. And the defendant gets a new trial on manslaughter as a result of the confessions being excluded. I mentioned the timing element here. The police, in good faith, on the last confession could could say clearly, here the guy was thinking clearly, he was Mirandized, recited the Miranda warnings, and gave a full confession. The problem is he had already spilled the beans, sometimes referred to the cat being out of the bag in this realm the day before, and really was in no position to walk back his confession. He had already offered a number of fake narratives, the missing wife theory, the we were both abducted narrative, silly narrative, and and finally one that made sense and comported with the evidence once the body was discovered. Next one is another case where the court's policy role is turned into a statute and applied here. The case is State v. Bailey. Bailey is a Camden County police officer married to and has two children with a drug dealer. In her capacity as a police officer, she has access to databases, and she did indeed for her own personal purposes, enter her username and password to check up on activity related to her husband, his family members, and other associates in the drug dealing world. Bailey is found guilty of official misconduct by utilizing her resources, her access to aid in her criminal, her husband's criminal activities. Now, part of the state's evidence was a text message. And here comes the timing issue. So the text message was from September 16, 2014. And clearly the defendant police officer was indicating to her husband that she was doing what she was doing because she loved him and she was with him and in aid of him. And it wasn't a problem. And and 
goes back and forth. So it's spousal text messages. Remember, we've got a marital communications privilege, which bars a spouse from testifying against another spouse and would include the text messages. They would be ordinarily excluded. However, going back to the court's policy role, in State v. Terry, a 2014 New Jersey Supreme Court case, the court urged the legislature to close the gap and create a crime fraud exception to the marital communications privilege. And the legislature did. So Terry came out on July 22, 2014, and on November 9, 2015, the law was amended so that interspousal communication, marital communication, is not privileged when the communication is in aid of planning a crime, a future crime, fraudulent activities will not be subject to the privilege. Hence, the text messages are tossed and excluded because here the text fell between the State v. Terry finding July 22, 2014, and the amendment of the law in November 2015. The text message was on September 16, 2014. All that said, the court found that the error was harmless, that there was an overwhelming amount of evidence that the defendant police officer had committed official misconduct and the conviction was upheld. A unanimous opinion from Justice Solomon, Justice Pierre Louis did not participate. Last one is State v. Rahim Lane. Again, timing is critical. Lane, who it is acknowledged in the record, was a young man, age of 19, maybe did not have a complete grip on things, certainly had learning disabilities, commits a home invasion, threatening to kill two adults and a nine-year-old child with a gun in hand. He's convicted, and while his case is on appeal for his sentence, the legislature modifies mitigating factor number 14, dealing with youthful offenders. This is in October 2020, so about five years after the offense was committed. The Wiley defense attorneys raised this issue, asking that the court apply the October 2020 law that makes youth or expands the application of youth in its mitigation. An offender who commits an offense under the age of 26 gets the advantage of mitigation in the overall sentencing analysis. And again, the the defendant was on direct appeal. The case has a partial dissent from, you guessed it, Justice Alvin. Justice Alvin found that the defendant's original sentence of 14 years was excessive for a youthful offender. However, he concurs in Justice Patterson's opinion that the statute clearly applies prospectively only and that even pipeline defendants would not get the benefit of the mitigating factor number 14 in sentencing. All right, that's it. Timing, timing, timing. Right. Things matter in life. And here for all of these defendants, timing has benefited some and harmed others. In any event, appreciate you guys listening. And I will keep uh, knocking these out as fast as I can so that we sort of keep up with the term 
and uh, keep your fingers crossed that we're going to fill our vacancies soon. Have a good one. 